The following lecture was delivered at the 15th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Atlanta, Georgia, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Dr. Rona Novik presents her lecture, Mental Housekeeping. I want to talk today about our thinking and how we can clean up our thought act, how we can do some mental housekeeping to think in ways that make us as strong and as healthy as possible. And I'm, I don't want to just talk at you, I want to engage you as much as possible this evening, so I want you to take a minute to think about last night when you were going to sleep. What was running through your head? Everybody remember? What were you thinking before you went to sleep? One of the reasons, by the way, we'll get to your thoughts in a moment. One of the reasons that we thought of doing this topic this year at JLI, and it's my pleasure to be here, not the first, but the second time at the Jewish Learning Retreat, is that we have all experienced and are continuing to experience an unbelievable time in human history. We are very, very, I wrote this maybe two weeks ago, Menachem wanted the slides. It's amazing how much has changed in two weeks. Two weeks, I thought, uh, two weeks ago when I put the road ahead is unclear, maybe not. Well, guess what? It's very unclear. Um, and the truth of the matter is that I didn't want to do a talk. I agree with the rabbi who spoke at, at dinner, we don't want everything here to be about COVID and about our current situation, but our mental thinking and our mental housekeeping is actually important to us always. Whether we're in the midst of a pandemic or we're making a wedding or we're raising young children or dealing with old aging parents, how we think about our lives and our world, I'm gonna show you today makes a real difference and I hope I'm gonna give you some tools to make your thinking help you be the healthiest and strongest you can be. So when I asked you to think about what was on your mind last night before you fell asleep, very likely it fell into one of these categories. How many people it was a worry? How many people it was your to-do list? How many people it was a memory, good, bad, or indifferent? How many it was a daydream? A few, how many a wish? So these are the kinds of thoughts that play on our, I'm gonna date myself here, that play on our mental phonograph. Okay, if you're young, your mental iPod. Your mental, I don't know, I've, gone, I've been doing this for so many years, it's your cassette tape, your eight track, your, you know, they're all out of date now. So I wanna tell you two stories about thinking that are illustrated in my very rough graphic here that will make the point of why we have to clean up our act. Let's follow the top story first. This person is in bed, wakes up in the morning, and says, I have a headache. I woke up, my head hurts. The thought about the headache is, okay, I have, um, I, I, I have something very seriously wrong with me. Maybe I'm having, God forbid, a stroke. I actually think my right fingers are tingling a little bit. My headache's on the left side. 
there must be something going on, some secret disease. Even if I go to the emergency room, they're not going to find it. There's something really terribly wrong with me. What kind of day do I have? That person actually doesn't have much of a day. They go back to bed. I'm not getting out of bed. What's the point? I'm terribly sick. Let's take the second story about thinking. The person wakes up with the exact same thought. I've got a headache. But the reasoning is it's allergy season. My hay fever's acting up. That's what's giving me a headache. Maybe I'll give it some time, or I'll take my allergy medication, and I'm able to go about my day. Nothing changed between those two individuals. One woke up with a headache, the second one woke up with a headache. The only thing that changed was the thought wrapping that went around the headache. And that thinking shifted the course of their day. This is a minute example, but multiply it a gazillion times. Our thinking, the way we wrap what's happening in our life with either positive and productive or negative and non-productive thoughts is going to have enormous influence on how our life proceeds and goes forward. We know that thought is powerful. There is study after study after study that tells us what we know intuitively, which is that thought influences not only our behavior, but even our physiology and, of course, other thinking. Thoughts can snowball. The minute you start thinking one negative thought, more negative thoughts will follow. But imagine this unbelievable experiment. If I gave you a list of words to read, this side of the room, I'm giving you a list of words that says fast, athlete, speedy, healthy, strong. And I give this side of the room that says cane, walker, elderly, frail. And then I time how long it takes you to walk to the back door. Guess which side walks quicker? Just priming your brain with thoughts of health and vibrancy versus thoughts of frailty and illness will change your behavior and your physiology. We, we know we can lower our blood pressure, we can decrease our heart rate just by racing thoughts. I, I, my mother, God bless her, she should live at Mayeva Esrim. She's 88 wonderful years old. The only time my blood pressure was through the roof in any of my pregnancies was the one time she drove me to the OBGYN. And there was a very long wait, and we were sitting together in the doctor's waiting room, and she was saying, why is it so long? Is there an emergency? Maybe there's something wrong. Maybe the doctor was called out. Maybe you won't get called. Maybe My mother is a card-carrying worrier. She really could lead the, the pack in worry. And my blood pressure was just going up and up and up and up. Thoughts influence our physiology. Thoughts can be positive, negative, or neutral. Thoughts by themselves are neither good nor bad. It's how they impact us. And this is such an amazing thought. And I have to say that I'll get to Jewish understandings of thought a little bit later. But we don't know how lucky we have it, that it is part of our Jewish understanding of how our bodies and brains and minds work that we recognize that we have power over our thoughts as much as they have power over us. 
And I say we're fortunate because there are other religious and cultural traditions that do not believe this, that believe that thoughts are your karma. They just come to you and you have no power over them and you just have to live with the thoughts that are inserted into your life and into your mind. What I want to do tonight is look together at common thought pitfalls. You will recognize, I guarantee, you will recognize yourself in some of these, probably not all of them. We each have our own unique pattern of thought pitfalls. And then uh, we want to look at how we change them. Because generally, these pitfalls are self-destructive. They do not make us stronger or help us grow but rather they keep us stuck and they are the thinking patterns that have been shown to contribute to both depression and anxiety. So we want a clean house of them. We do not want to give prime real estate space in our mental storage compartment for those kinds of negative influences. Think about as you hear these, which have become habit for you and which ones reflect your patterns. And there are two, I think, on each slide and an example of them. Uh, all or nothing thinking, sometimes called black-white thinking. Um, I'm not perfect. If I'm not perfect, I've failed. I can't learn uh, anything online. I can't, I can't do shiorm online. I need to be in the room with someone. Can't, I never, I can't ever. When you hear those words, it's black or white thinking. And a close relative is overgeneralizing Everything is always rubbish. Nothing good ever happens. Seeing a pattern based on a single event, and any of you who have young children or adolescents know this hyperbole. You know, one little thing goes wrong in a teenager's life, and my life is ruined forever. That's it. It's over. She wore the same shirt as me. I can't ever show my face in that school again. That's very, very common in hyperbolic adolescent thinking, but Look at yourselves, sometimes we do it too. Um, two other ones, uh, what's called a mental filter. Uh, only paying attention to certain types of evidence. Noticing only the COVID incidence rates and not the fact that so many people are vaccinated and thank God we're all here, we're all healthy and we're together. Um, it's looking at only the negative and making a generalization from that. Uh, which relates very much to disqualifying the positive. What's the point of getting together with two friends if I can't have a wedding for 750 of my closest associates, then what's the point? Um, jumping to conclusions, um, there are uh, two types of jumping to conclusions. Mind reading, imagining I know how other people think. Oh, I know she's mad at me. I know he didn't say good job is because uh, he, he's upset about something I did. Um, and fortune telling, predicting the future when we don't know, we never know what the future will hold. And then there's magnification and catastroph catastrophizing whose flip side is minimizing. If you've ever held up a, a set of binoculars, you know that when you look through it in one direction, it makes everything look bigger. It takes a small thing and makes it enormous. Flip the binoculars the other way, it takes a big thing and makes it tiny. Neither one is terribly helpful or healthy. You know, if you say, well, I, I can text while I'm driving, it's no big deal. Very dangerous. 
It's equally dangerous to say, I can't text while I'm driving, I can't talk while I'm driving, I can't think when I'm driving, I better never drive a car. Neither one, making it either too big or too small, is going to be healthy or move us forward. Um, emotional reasoning, assuming that we feel, because I feel a certain way, it must be true. Because I'm frightened, things must be terrible. Well, sometimes our thoughts are not rational. Sometimes our feelings, although they're valid, they have a place, are not based in truth. I feel embarrassed, so I must be stupid. Um, and then uh, a very common, uh, in the 60s, Albert Ellis made famous the notion of we should not should on ourselves, that we should not punish ourselves by saying, I should be thinner. I should be, again, my 88-year-old mother, mom, thank you so much for all the examples tonight. In all, every day when you would call her in the beginning of COVID, she would say, I'm in the house all day long, 88 years old. Why aren't I cleaning out closets? How come I can't get to those drawers? And it's like, mom, just be happy that you're healthy and, you know, find things to keep yourself busy. Don't worry about the closets. Uh, and I think this is the last one, labeling, assigning a label to a person because of one characteristic, and personalization. Of course it's my fault that the plane was late today. Uh, last I checked, you don't have a pilot's license. You're not the one who controls how long the lines were in the airport. But of course it's my fault I missed that appointment. Sometimes things are not in our control. The first step of mental housekeeping is asking yourself about any one of these thoughts, the two essential questions. And I, I love getting the validation of I you know, speak fairly frequently um, now on Zoom from my dining room table and sometimes even the bracha of doing it in person. But it's wonderful when I meet someone who says, I still remember 10 years ago the two questions you told me I have to ask myself. The first question is, is my thought true? Let's take a COVID example. COVID makes people sick. Is that thought true? Nine times out of 10, our negative thoughts come from a place of at least partial truth. And we can't eliminate the question from our mind based on question one alone. So we have to move to question two. If either of these, the answer to either of these is no, then we can clean house. So the second question is actually much more important because it is, is this thought helpful? Is going to bed with it the last thing I think and waking up with it the first thing I think? Is talking about it, thinking about it constantly? Is it having it play over and over in my mental iPod? Is that good for me? Is it helpful? And if the answer to that question is no, then we have to move to how do I clean house? How do I move and get rid of that, that thought occupying space and keeping me stuck? Question? It's a really good point that sometimes, it, we'll get to some strategies in a minute, sometimes one of the ways we can do our mental housekeeping is saying, well, is the thought 100% true? Is it true in only these contexts? Is it true only on these, uh, under these circumstances? And that will loosen up. Because what happens with negative thinking is that it gets entrenched, it becomes a habit, and it gets stuck. And it does, it plays like, again, I'm gonna date myself, like a broken record. 
Remember records, ladies and gentlemen? I'm not the only one old enough to remember records, right? They get stuck in the groove, and you would hear the same phrase over and over and over again. Um, so we have to start with these two thoughts, and then we can begin to do our mental housekeeping. Now, step one is to know I'm in a negative thought pattern. To know that I have a tendency to personalize, or I have a tendency, you should have all of these in your slides, by the way. You have, I see people taking pictures, which is fine, but you have all these slides in your handouts. Um, know your negative thought patterns, and even know the triggers for them. You know, if you're a student and before a test, you know you're going to be doing the binocular thinking. Oh my gosh, if I fail this test, that's it. I'm flunking out. I'll never get my degree. I'll never be a teacher, lawyer, engineer, whatever it is. Then you know that's your negative thought pattern. If you know your thought pattern is personalizing, they put that speed trap there just to bother me. They know. They know I'm in a rush. They know it's Erev Shabbos. That's why there's a speed trap there today, or that's why there's traffic today. Catch yourself when you engage in those negative thought habits. Recognize that it's happening, and then ask your two essential questions, and now we'll unpack some other ways to clean house, including refocusing and reframing. Remember our headache story. If the frame around this thought pattern is making it worse, can I think about it in a new way? Can I think about, could it possibly be allergies? Maybe it is not something seriously mentally wrong, medically wrong with me. Maybe it's just a, a normative um, reason. Distraction is an amazing mental tool. Listen to music, do a crossword puzzle, call a friend, do something that takes your mind away from the constant focus on a negative thought. Now here's the trick to that. If you are super anxious and worried about something and a thought is playing over and over and over in your head and you try to distract yourself with, oh, I'll just think happy thoughts, it's not going to work. You need a mental distraction that is at requires at least as much mental energy as your worry is taking from you. So it might be, okay, I'm gonna think about the state capitals in alphabetical order. Or for me, I'm gonna do math. That requires so much mental energy on my part that there's no way I can focus on a worry if I have to count backwards by seven from 100. That requires all of my mental concentration to do that. So find a distraction that works. Most distractions will not work long term. But if you need to get over a temporary uh, thought stuckage, I'll call it, then distraction can work wonders. And we can create a replacement thought, a new mental mantra that I am going to repeat and tell myself over and over again the same way I used to repeat that negative thought over and over in my head. But again, here's the trick. The thought can't be Pollyannish. It can't be simplistic. It can't be COVID's nothing. There's nothing to worry about. Because the human brain is incredibly sophisticated. And it will reject out of hand those replacement thoughts that it knows are absurd. You know, I can worry about my weight and my physical exercise status, and I can tell myself, oh, 
next year, you're going to be a supermodel. And my brain is going to say, oh, yeah, dream on, Rona. It's not happening. That's not going to work to replace the thought because it's totally unrealistic. But if I say, little by little, la'at, la'at, you're going to add some exercise, and you're doing OK, and doctor says you're good, don't be so worried, that can make a huge difference. One, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the process that's called thought exchange. Basically saying, here's the thought that I'm struggling with that's keeping me stuck. How do I pick an alternate way of thinking that is not too Pollyannish, that is not pie in the sky, but that is going to allow me to move forward? But there are two other strategies I'd like to suggest. One is what I call the give me five strategy. I discovered this working with kids who are very concrete but have the same problem at getting stuck in negative thought pattern. And so they'll come in and say, uh, my teacher hates me. I can't do anything right, my teacher hates me. And I'll say, okay, give me five other possible ways of thinking about your teacher. With kids, I'll say three of them can be supernatural, fantastic, or magical. So, you know, my teacher's an alien, somebody kidnapped my teacher, and this is a stranger in their body. But at least two have to be different explanations other than that rigid, stuck thought, my teacher hates me. We also, adults, get very stuck in our thinking. And we can say, give me five. I'm going to think about five different ways to think about my in-laws than the way I currently think about them. Anytime we loosen up our thinking, we are doing mental housekeeping because it's the negative thought patterns that get stuck and entrenched that we want to avoid. So even if it wants, you want to be, my in-laws were kidnapped by aliens and have been replaced by body snatchers, you know, if it helps to loosen up your thinking, Go ahead, gig is into hate. The last strategy for dealing with negative thinking is called Socratic arguments. And we have a wonderful example in Torah of the Socratic argument when um, Hashem, when God wants to destroy the cities of Stom and Amorav, Sodom and Gomorrah, Avraham Avinu says, if I find you a hundred, does it start with a hundred? I'm trying to remember. If I find you a hundred righteous men, will you save the city? No. What if I find you 80, 70? Finally, it's down to a minion. If there are 10 righteous men, will you save the city? How does that apply to negative thinking? If we take any negative thought and ask ourselves, am I maybe not 100% certain of this thought? Is there a 5% chance that I'm off, that I'm wrong? Well, if there's a 5% chance, could there be a 10? Could there be a 20? Maybe there's actually only a 50-50 chance that I'm right about this. Again, a way to loosen up our thinking. And the other form of Socratic argument is to actually imagine having to be the prosecuting attorney in a court of law arguing against the validity of your thought. Okay, thought is up there saying, you're a lazy bum, you haven't exercised enough. In a court of law, how would I argue the case? How would I prosecute that thought? What evidence do you have that you're lazy? 
what evidence do you have that you're not, yesterday you did your Zumba class, the day before you did a walk, today you walked around the lake. You don't have evidence, you have evidence to the contrary. That's another example of using Socratic argument. Now by the way, all of this is being done in here. I don't expect you to be walking the halls of the Marriott doing Socratic argument out loud while everybody else listens. We're doing this, and we do mental exercises in our head all the time. Think about any, anyone in the room, parents, you run errands. You know, you have in your, in your head in the morning, the minute you wake up, until you go to bed at night, you're running a script of to-do lists, and I'll go first to the dry cleaner, then I'll stop at the post office, then I'll pick up the kids, then I'm gonna go to the butcher, then I'll put the meat in the crock pot, then I'll do, you're running that internal thought process all the time. In the same way, you can run a Socratic argument, a gimme five, a thought exchange, without anybody else knowing that you're doing it. It's in your private. Um, now, all of the strategies I've given you so far are dealing with negative thoughts after they've happened or when they happen. But I'd like to suggest that we can vaccinate ourselves against negative thinking. There are actually some proactive things that we can do that are going to make a positive difference. One incredibly powerful positive thought um, strategy is a focus on gratitude. Gratitude is nothing short of magical. And by the way, psychologists study it, they, cannot, they can't explain it. They cannot explain why writing down three times, three things at the end of every day that you are thankful for makes you healthier. You'll go to the doctor less. I'm, I'm not making it up. Studies that show in a two week period, that's all you have people do. The end of every day, write down three things you're thankful for. They get sick less, they go to the doctor less, they exercise more, and they have lower rates of depression and anxiety. Ladies and gentlemen, this is like easy peasy. Three things. It is being done in a lot of schools, but it's not just our schools. It also, it's something we have to reinforce at our homes, and it's not just at the Shabbos table, what did you do that you liked this week? It's, it's really every day. It turns out, by the way, that the act of writing it down seems to be critical. It's not enough to simply, I'm going to think about things I'm thankful for, but actually making a conscious act of writing it down. And study after study is showing the power of gratitude. So we need, and again, we have so much Jewish heritage that emphasizes the need and the centrality and the importance of gratitude. Even in, in our last session, there was a wonderful discussion about you know, Mashiach coming and won't it be wonderful. Well, in our davening, in our tefillot, in our prayers, when we have the chazan, the, the, the cantor, say the prayers to repeat the amidah, the silent prayer, he repeats it all for us. He's our agent speaking to God on our behalf, except for one part. There's one part of the Amidah that he can't say for us. That's the, moda, uh, the, the modim. Because thankfulness is something that you can't, you can't outsource it. You have to give gratitude yourself. When Mashiach comes, it's the one korban, it's the one sacrifice that will be maintained 
even though we will not have the same liturgy and the same series of sacrifices when the Messiah comes. Gratitude will always be central to who the Jew is. Even in our name, Yehudim, no? We have the word of thanks in there. Um, the other enormous, powerful benefit is exercise. Exercise is the brain's natural chemistry reset button. When we exercise as little as 20 minutes of moderate exercise a day, three times a week, will create the release of endorphins in the brain, which are natural stress busters. They are mood elevators, and when you feel good, you think better. You're less likely to be stuck in negative thought patterns. And so exercise is another insulator for our thinking. Social connection, talking to others and being with others on Zoom, in the room, on the phone, texting, social media, however you do it, friendships matter. If you don't have friends, get some, you'll live longer. The research again shows that friendship is an insulator to life's insults and stresses, and people who have friends are healthier and live longer. But the other thing about friendship is that when you have friends that you engage in open and regular communication with, they become reality thought checkers. They'll begin to tell you, uh, Rona, you're doing that negative thinking again. Cut it out. You know it's not your fault that you were late. You know that you're doing great. They will help you correct your negative thought patterns. If they know you well enough, they'll catch you doing it. And then we forget all the time, and even though I'm thinking about and talking about you know, a checkup from the neck up, that we are biological organisms. We need fuel and we need rest to work our best. The next time you're sleep deprived, just take note if your thinking is productive or not. If you're a little bit more irritable or edgy, the next time you're hungry, notice your thought patterns. We do ourselves a disservice mentally when we don't take care of the basic biological engine of our body. I noticed when I was raising our children that often I would rush home from work and rush into the house and be a bit frazzled dealing with uh, you know, a, a bevy of children and their schoolwork and et cetera. And sometimes I wouldn't be the calmest or most you know, even-keeled person. And then I realized that I'm always entering the house starving. And that having a snack in the car on the way home totally changes my mental capacity. So thinking about basic biology is really important. There are other skills, and I don't have the time in this session, I will in a session tomorrow, unpack some of these much more, but just to give you a, a, a hint, a coming attraction, that learning skills of relaxation and mindfulness in particular absolutely help learn to manage your thinking. Relaxation and mindfulness are like meditative practices. They are not um, associated with any particular 
um, religion, although, again, you can look at the, the history of Jewish meditation and mindfulness, and it is absolutely something that for the ages has been part of our tradition. Um, but whatever method you decide to use to learn these skills and techniques, they make a difference. Now, here's the thing to remember about learning any skill and technique, and I'll use the parallel of driving. When you first learn to drive, if you can remember back to when you first learned to drive, everything felt artificial and you had to think about everything. You had to think about which foot goes where and where do I put my hands on the wheel. If, I, if someone asks me now, how do you drive? I, I, don't, I don't know what I, what do you do first when you get in a car? I, I don't know, I just drive. Because it's become automatic, because it, it is what in neuroscience we call an overlearned behavior. It's so overlearned that it has now become natural and ingrained and therefore requires very little, if any, mental energy to do. It's why when we're driving, we can deal, God forbid, with a skid, with an accident, because the basics of driving we have down pat so we can deal with emergency situations. Do not think that I'm gonna go on the web tomorrow or I'm gonna read a book on mindfulness and then I'll be able to deal with a visit from difficult relatives uh, in the middle of a pandemic while I'm uh, dealing with a deadline from work and uh, one of my kids is not feeling well. And I'll be able to deal with all my negative thinking because I, I read about mindfulness yesterday. It's a skill that requires time and practice to learn to become ingrained so that you can use it without needing a lot of mental energy. Um, imagery techniques are simply a way of using mental images. Um, the first time that imagery was discovered was not by psychologists. It was actually, we just finished the Olympics. It was Olympic pole vaulters. There was a, a team of Eastern European pole vaulters who were unbeatable. And when someone watched the videos of the pole vaulters, they noticed that when they stand at the line, before they take off, run, 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 plant their pole and arc in that unbelievably high jump over that bar, they all had their eyes closed. And some coach from an opposing team had the brilliant idea to say, why are their eyes closed when they're at the line? And their coach said, well, I have them imagine their bodies in space arcing over the bar. It turns out that the human mind is such that when we imagine something, we're more likely to be successful in actually doing it in real life. And there's a whole science now of how to harness the power of imagery to use the power of mental images and our thinking to be more successful and also to avoid some of the negative thought patterns we're talking about. And finally, something as simple as breathing. Um, anyone here do Lamaze when you're, so you know they teach you about different breathing. If you want to do an experiment, we'll do it, we'll do it right now because we have, we have the time. Put one hand here and one hand on your stomach. After, after, one, one hand up here on your, like on the top of your chest, one on your stomach, and take a deep breath. Notice which hand is moving. Do two deep breaths. I can see it already. How many people, this hand is moving more? Okay, how many people, the stomach hand? Good, you're breathing right. 
<laughs> Sorry for those of you up here. But shallow chest breathing, this is called, doing this. <sighs> doesn't oxygenate our brain. It does not allow for enough oxygen to get into those neurons, and it actually increases anxiety. Now here's the catch-22. What do we do when we're nervous? <gasps> we pant. We do that kind of breathing. And so a simple, the simplest thing of saying, if I'm nervous, if I'm having worry thoughts, get that hand on my stomach, and the opposite of what we're all told to do, ladies, which is, you know, hold it in, just let it all out, <laughs> and breathe through your, your diaphragm, and get the kind of oxygen that is going to help your brain do its best work. So I promised we would think through a Jewish lens. We've so far talked about the psychology of thinking. What does Torah and Jewish perspectives tell us? Well, as I said earlier, we really are blessed in that we have in Jewish thought extensive thought about thinking. We have this notion of kavana of when we pray, when we do a mitzvah, when we observe a commandment, the ideal way to do so is with intent and mindful focus. That's the ideal, that's what we strive for. And so there are many writings of sages and examples of greats in Jewish history who have worked very hard to master this dilemma. How often when we are engaged in task A, whether it's making dinner or davening mariv, our mind wanders to something else. How hard it is, and yet again, our sages understood that the best practice is practice that includes an alignment of what I'm doing with what I'm thinking. My colleague David Pelkovitz introduced me to the wonderful notion that the word sameach, which in Hebrew means happiness, is a combination of sam moach, put your mind, put your brain somewhere, that our happiness derives from where we put our mental energy, that if we think misery and darkness and all of those negative thought patterns, then sameach is elusive, then we are not happy. We also have an amazing understanding in Jewish thought, which has been validated by numerous psychological experiments, one of which I was actually a therapist in, the, in the, uh, one of the experiments that proved this, that we can, as important as this idea of intent and kavana is, that sometimes our actions have to be automatic and without thought or intent, and the thought will follow. Sometimes we have to act, do, do the mitzvah, take care of something, the thought will follow. Here's the, the experiment that I was a therapist in many, many years ago. I don't want to say how many years when I was in training. I was a therapist in an experiment treating depressed women. One group of depressed women got medication. One group got standard therapy. And the group that I was running were simply told to act not depressed. We gave them a task every day. Today you have to call two friends. Tomorrow you have to go on a lunch date. 
The next day, you have to get up and take a shower. The we just prescribed behaviors. Guess which group had the quickest recovery from depression? Wasn't because I was a better therapist. It was because behavior change resulted in other changes. And so as important as our thinking is, sometimes we just, Nike, Nike slogan, just do it. Sometimes we have to just do it and say, our thinking is not there yet, but by doing it, I'm gonna develop the healthy thought patterns. There's some wonderful writings in, in Jewish uh, sources about thought. Rabbi Alexandri would end his daily prayers with the following supplication. Master of the universe, you know full well that it's our desire to act according to your will, but what prevents us from doing so? The yeast in the dough, the chametz. It's not Pesach yet, but um, the chametz is referred to as seor in the Talmud. Seor is a metaphor for the powerful drives and passions that lurk within us all. Our mind has the ability to distort the reality, this is Rabbi Alexandri writing, has um, the ability to distort the reality of our vision, inflate our desires, and draw us in directions that we would never take if we were to follow only our cold, rational side. The impulse to evil ferments and corrupts. But look at this next source. Rab Nachman says, you're the rider, and your thoughts, thoughts are the horse. The Rebbe's analogy tells us that not only can we train our thinking and regain control over it when it veers off course, but that it's normal for it to run astray. That's what horses do. That's what thoughts do. They sometimes run to the negative. So there's no reason to panic. The challenge is to remember you are the rider. You have to dominate the horse and subdue it. The challenge exists because the horse our thinking seems to be as independent as we are, but not so. God made it to truly look and seem that way so that we should have free will. In fact, anyone who wants to can control the horse. All of us can make the difference. So to sum up, we are what we think, but we decide what we think, and that means we decide who we are. We decide which thoughts we give place in our head. And I didn't say this um, so much, but we also can look at what are the triggers. Uh, in, in my house, it's kind of a joke, but like I don't watch the news uh, after 7 at night. I don't listen to news after 7 at night because it will keep me up. And we don't talk finances or family after 10 at night because then that will be what runs in my head and it will be hard, it'll be worries. So we don't do that. Um, it, realize that changing your thought habits takes time. You've been doing it this way for a while. It will take time to unlearn it. But as Pirkei Avot tells us, even when a task is great, we don't have permission to throw up our hands and say we can't do it. We have to start it. We don't have to finish it, we don't have to get all the way, but we have to start it. So start somewhere, start today, Challenge your thought habits, but be patient. One of, talk about thinking. Um, I've always wanted to write, I, I write a lot, but mostly professional, and I've always wanted to write a children's book, and a year ago, my first children's book was published, 
which is uh, Mommy, Can You Stop the Rain? A story about dealing with worries and anxiety and how parents can help. I have copies of them here if people are interested in purchasing signed copies, et cetera, um, and flyers about them. And also, feel free to visit websites and read other things and, and hear about uh, hear other talks that I've given. But comments and questions. Yes. So those are some of the strategies that I gave you. But really, when I say we decide what we think, there, there's no question that thoughts come into our mind unbidden. It happens. It happens to all of us. You know, if I tell you, don't think pink elephants, now you're all thinking pink elephants. There's no way to get it out of your head. That's the nature of the human mind. What we decide is, am I going to sit here and say, pink elephants, I wonder how big the trunk is on the pink elephant, and I wonder how much that pink elephant weighs, or am I going to say, I'm going to distract myself. That's not a thought that's terribly valuable for me to give my time to, and so I'm going to distract myself. If it was a worry thought that came into my head, like in the beginning, I would think, what's the frame around it? Okay, I'm worried about someone in the family, somebody's health in the family. I can either frame that thought with every negative possibility, or I can say, I'm gonna frame that thought to say they're going to the doctor this week. Nine times out of 10, it's something straightforward. What's the point of worrying about it now? I'm gonna try all different thought strategies that are going to decrease the power of that thought. So when I say we can control our thoughts, by no means do I mean to say, wake up every morning and just be happy and it just happens. No, it's a struggle. It's a constant struggle. But the more strategies you have and the more you know yourself, the easier it is to avoid or rewrap, repackage that thinking so it, you don't get so stuck so that you can move past it. Yeah. I'm not a Rav. I'm not a Jewish philosopher. I'm a clinical psychologist and an educator. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer from my, my expertise. And from my expertise, what we, that, why one person worries finance and why one person worries about you know, their children or you know, will the cholent burn has to do with their own life experience and what's powerful and important and challenging for them. Um, and, and by the way, it's sometimes counterintuitive. So people who've grown up in poverty may worry about their finances, but so will people who've grown up wealthy. You know, it's not, it's not um, everyone's individual about what pushes their buttons. If we could, you know, look at the sum total of your experience, we might have the answer. If you want my religious thinking or understanding about it, again, just on a personal level, I will say that I think that Hashem gives each of us challenges. And each of us have things that we need to work on. And why Hashem decides that you're going to go to bed worrying about finance and you're going to worry about... We had a, a wonderful um, question and answer in our last session about, you know, if you could ask Hashem any question, what would it be? Um, and the answer wasn't my answer, but I think it's a very interesting answer that someone gave is I wouldn't want to ask Hashem a question because Hashem's understanding of the world is so beyond the complexity that we could possibly process. So I don't know why 
I, I don't have an answer to why Hashem sends this person this worry, other than maybe there's maybe there's a reason that that person needs that focus or needs to master that worry. I mean, all of us have, you know, all of us have work to do in our life. We're not perfect. And, you know, maybe that's the work that that person needs to do. I, I do think, by the way, that the, um, the psychology of stress suggests that whether I'm right or not, thinking that way is healthy. <laughs> I'll tell you what I mean. The psychology of stress suggests that one of the greatest antidotes to dealing with um, stress is meaning making, is meaning making. Being able to understand the stressful experiences that you are presented with in life in some meaningful way. Not a simplistic way, not, you know, oh, you know, Hashem sent COVID because X. No, understanding the complexity, but saying, I'm going to make meaning of this. We saw that, by the way, in the pandemic with children writing thank you notes and standing outside with, there was a, a house in our neighborhood that posted a joke, a silly corny joke on a big bay window every day for 365 days, a new joke. That was how they found meaning and purpose. And frankly, we walked every day in front of that house and we looked for the joke. And it was very cute on day 365, they had the Warner Brothers, that's all folks sign posted that they were, they were uh, done. Um, but that was how they found meaning. So what I would say is that a healthy attitude when I'm confronted with why when I go to bed I'm worrying about finances is to say there's a meaning in this. There's something I need to do. This is telling me something. That worry is there to help me grow in some way. I'm going to make some, I'm going to see some reason and purpose in this and that's going to be a healthier attitude than to struggle with, why, is, why, why me? Why is this happening to me? It's healthier to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find some understanding that makes sense of it. Thank you. Other comments or questions? Thank you all so much. Have a wonderful evening and look forward to seeing people during the, our time together. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.